Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 38, which is right near the end of chapter 12. The first half of our passage today is really a brief summary of Jesus' last public sermon. And that's found in Matthew chapter 23, and it's widely known as the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. The second half of our passage today is a beautiful and needed contrast to the wickedness Jesus has just then publicly exposed. And it's about a poor widow's offering in the temple. You might also notice that while we finished a passage last week in which Jesus publicly took the scribes to task for their teaching, which was so wrong and so misguided, Now this week, Jesus is zeroing in on their practices. So first he he called them to account for their teaching, and now he's looking at what they do, their actual practice. And he does that by contrasting the scribes' evil practices with the true devotion of that poor widow. In other words, Jesus had publicly exposed the scribes and the Pharisees' wrong teaching, and now he also exposes their wrong actions and behaviors, and we will see their motivations. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. Well, first, let's be clear that this description is not a true picture of every single scribe. But it is a picture of very many of the scribes. 
the lawyer scribe that we looked at earlier in this chapter in verses 28 through 34, remember him, who asked Jesus the question about the greatest commandment? He was obviously a very different kind of person than what Jesus is describing here. But many scribes were proud, selfish, insincere, and untrustworthy. So much so that Jesus delivers his last public sermon addressing them in the public atmosphere. Lots of other people on the Temple Mount hearing this. He says, beware of the scribes or watch out for the teachers of the law. And what are we to beware of, to watch out for? Mark lists here in his summary six specific actions, behaviors, and motivations. And first we see those who like to walk around in long robes. Do you have that picture in your mind? These men were putting on airs. And that's just an older way of saying that the way they walked around. In their first century power clothing, it was specific dress that was meant to call attention to their status. And it indicated that they were trying to make themselves look important, look look powerful, and authoritative. In other words, what does that mean? Better than everyone else around them. Secondly, we see those who like greetings in the marketplace. And this is really referring to formal type greetings. In other words, they like being addressed as rabbi or some other designated official title, which would indicate this deference being given to them was deserved. What these men are being rebuked for, rebuked for here by Jesus is that they were always, always longing for a demonstration of respect, public recognition of their prominence, and not being grateful for any normal type greeting which indicated friendliness. Did you catch the other side of that coin? If you were on the Temple Mount and you were heading right for one another, would they just swish by? Or would you hear, oh, hi, good morning, God bless you this day? Nope, not from these guys, not anything close. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is warning the people about those who like or think they deserve to have the best seats in the synagogue. This one's kind of interesting. There were seats in in their synagogue in front of the raised platform on which the prayer leader and the reader of the scriptures were. And you're trying to figure out where that is. Here, if we had special seating in the baptistry, otherwise known in some denominational circles as the choir loft, except these weren't for the choir loft, which is the whole point. You get a picture. In other words, 
here or here. Got that picture? In other words, these seats allowed their occupants to be near the person reading or leading in prayer. What does that convey? And also be facing the rest of the congregation so they could see who was doing what. But most importantly, so they could be seen by the congregation. And even... Being ushered to such a seat was regarded as a very high honor. So they weren't sitting there for any other reason, really, than to be seen and recognized. Fourthly, Jesus warns the people to beware of, to watch out for those who like or think they deserve to have the places of honor at feasts. In Luke 14, 7 through 11, we see that Jesus has taught about this before. You're probably very familiar with this. Now he told a parable because he had noticed how the guests at the feast chose the places of honor. So he said to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host come, he may say, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And then his point For everyone who exalts himself will be, you know it, humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. In more general terms, James, in his letter, writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Fifthly, Jesus says to beware of those who devour widows' houses. So how do these scribes make themselves richer by taking advantage of widows? Well, there's lots of ways. You could probably add greatly to this list. One way is by asking widows to contribute more than they really could And, of course, these funds were controlled by the scribes. Another way is by offering their help in settling widows' estates and then taking more than is allowed. Third way is by taking unfair advantage of material support that had been initially volunteered by the women before they lost their husbands, but now still asked for and expected 
after they'd been widowed. Now, sadly, these kind of things have not gone away anywhere. The church is supposed to be the safe place that you can get comfort, advice, protection, wisdom in those kind of situations. So in other words, what was Jesus condemning here in this fifth warning? He's condemning the extortion of widows, which in Scripture is one of the most heinous crimes anywhere. Lastly, Jesus is warning the people to beware of the scribes for a pretense in making long prayers. The issue is not the length of the prayer, really. It's the motivation here. Notice that the deed is explained by the motive. Other translations say, for appearance sake, offer long prayers. Or say long prayers just for show. So we don't want to hear anybody saying, Bobby, or fill in the blank. Your prayers are just going on. I mean, I timed it. If it's for something we need to cover, praise God that one of your leaders or one of you wants to pray about it. That's not the point. The point here is the motivation for doing so, which is pretty apparent. So, Jesus makes clear that he's condemning prayers of any length whose purpose is to draw attention to the person praying. And if that's the main purpose, then the desire for recognition and the honor of men when supposedly approaching God's throne, that would be the epitome of hypocrisy and an evil heart. This condemnation may even be connected to the devouring of women's widows' houses. How? How could that be connected? Can you all figure that one out? It's a really easy connection to make. And here's what it is. If some of the scribes were extorting widows, then how repulsive is it to recognize that these same scribes were making their long prayers to cover up their wickedness? Even praying long prayers for the very widows they were taking advantage of. Jesus ends this public rebuke of really what I'd call the nauseating actions, behaviors, and motivations of many of the scribes with a very short but very clear, terrifying statement of fact. What is it? They will receive the greater condemnation. This is a very strong statement. It means a heavier sentence, much more severe punishment, overflowing condemnation. For these men, the students, interpreters, and teachers of the law, who had every reason to know that God required what? Humility. 
sincerity, service, love, their condemnation will be unthinkably more severe. Now, there are many, many lessons here for us. Let me just go through a few. Jesus warns all of us against the sinful craving to be somebody. Which in the last several decades in our culture has become the mantra. That has all sorts of implications if you belong to Christ. How can you be excellent in your work, in your relationships, and at the same time be humble and people know that you're just not using them to be somebody, but that you really are interested in serving them and following Christ in the process. Remember in Mark 10, which we covered a while back, we read, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus had been working on this with his own apostles early on. Because they recognized, first and foremost, he was different. He was worthy and worth the effort to follow. And they wanted to follow along and what? Have a lot of that splash off upon them. And it got to their heads several times and Jesus had to deal with it directly. Secondly, the thing that we can learn is that Jesus does rebuke everything that seems to be a sham in religion and not genuine. Instead, his followers are called to be, and here's a word we don't hear very much anymore, we're called to be unpretentious, modest, humble, honest, forthright. Thirdly, Jesus condemns using religion for gain. Of course, he never did anything about this. Unless you were asleep, out of town, or you didn't ever read the two accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple where all this was going on. And you saw his righteous fury demonstrated at, that, at both of those times. Fourthly, Jesus says that those who know his word, and of course he's speaking about the scribes who taught it, who were tasked with explaining it. And yet those then persevere in what they know is clearly sin from the law, from Scripture. Jesus says those people are headed for greater punishment. Fifthly, Jesus sees and knows everything We say that glibly, but it's so true. No one can hide their real intentions from him. No one. So the true solution, there is a very clear one in Psalm. It may be one of your favorite passages. Let me read it. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I cannot pray that prayer without what? Without yielding, without recognizing his lordship. None of us can. That's why that is so very special, direct to the point. Then, it looks like Jesus took a break because this sermon was, as you know from Matthew, it was long. And he's up on the Temple Mount, so he goes, we read in verses 41, directly opposite of the treasury. And I hope as we take off in the last couple of verses here that we see the connection between this account of the widow's offering and what Jesus had just publicly revealed about the scribe's extortion of widows. The setting here, as we all see in verse 31, is this temple treasury, which was part of the court of the women in the temple a court that both men and women were allowed to come into. And Jesus sat down somewhere opposite the treasury so he could watch people bring their offerings. I know there's some of you with a grander sense of humor that will now, on purpose, sit facing the offering box in the back of our church and just say you were doing what God was doing in the person of Christ. Have your fun, but realize that God sees everything. God knows our hearts. And this is Jesus just observing what's going on here. So the people would come in here at this treasury in the temple mount, temple, and there was 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles that were used for that purpose. And each receptacle was used for a different purpose. So people would bring in their gifts, and this, is, this one's for this purpose, and this one's for this purpose, and this one's for this purpose. And some of our <coughs> financial people in here are probably thinking, oh, man, this would make it so much easier. I don't have to look at the category. We just give, and you put it over here, and that's where it goes, and we don't have to report that, and blah, 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 blah. It is a long practice to realize this is what was being done. Some gifts were for the temple. Some were for sacrifices. Some were for incense, wood to keep, upkeep, and other things that were done uh, to take care of all these different needs, including some of the people. And at the end of verse 41, we read, many rich people put in large sums. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course, at all. But that's not what caused, caught Jesus' attention. What caught his attention was the poor widow who put in two of the smallest coins in circulation in Palestine. Their value was absolutely minimal. Hard to put in our dollar amount, but I'll give you a range. 
because you can find all sorts of answers to this question, but this shouldn't be too hard. It's anywhere from one sixteenth to one sixty fourth of a denarius, which was a Palestinian kind of scale for a laborer's, a common laborer's daily wage, which was low. So anywhere from one sixteenth to one sixty fourth. See how small that is? From a human perspective, the gift was practically insignificant. But what about from a divine perspective? From Jesus' perspective? Her contribution was priceless, as the next two verses tell us. And he called his disciples to him. They weren't with him right there. This was so incredible that Jesus gathered his men. Come over here. They weren't too far away. Come over here. You've got to be a part of this. See this. Watch this. Help me explain, help me explain this. Truly I say to you, this poor widow, as she goes by, has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Can you see them? For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What this widow did was so important that Jesus called his disciples to come over and take notice of it. How many times does that happen as we read the Gospels? Truly I say to you is Jesus' way of introducing a subject of great significance and importance. Do you understand that? We're so used to reading it we don't even think about it. It's another way of saying, remember the old language? Verily I say to you. Okay, that's a little much. How about, I assure you, truly. In other words, what he's about to point out to them should be taken to heart. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. So what was it that made her gift so precious? Well, the fact that all the others had given out of their abundance, but she had given out of her poverty. And this shows us that the means of the giver and the motive of the giver are the real measure of true generosity. She put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, there is possibly a very good other... um, some, some details here that we could add to explain this. For instance, had the scribes been laying on the law about what a person should give? That's an easy yes or no question. Yes, because they had thought of all sorts of ways to skim it. Would that change for a widow? Did they have special compassion for widows as we've already seen? It 
No, Jesus just preached a sermon. Seven woes to the scribes. One of the biggest was this, the extortion of widows. So what if there was so much pressure put on that this dear woman thought she had to, but she was so concerned about doing what God wanted her to do that she did give it all, even though it's all she had. Was her motivation still pure? Yeah. She was maybe being used and forced to do something that the people forcing her to do it would be held accountable for what? With great condemnation. It's possible. John Calvin writes, the lesson here is useful in two ways. The Lord encourages the poor who appear to lack the means of doing well not to doubt that they testify to their enthusiasm for Him even when what they give is a slender, slender contribution. If they consecrate themselves, their offering, which appears humble and trivial, will be no less precious than if they had offered all the treasures of a king. Anybody feel freed up yet? On the other hand, those who have a rich supply and stand out for their large giving are told that it's not enough if their generosity far exceeds the commoners and the underprivileged. For with God it rates less for a rich man to give a moderate sum from a large mass than for a poor man to exhaust himself in paying out something very small. Well, what are the important observations and lessons with all this? Well, when it comes to giving... The posture of our hearts makes all the difference. For instance, when I write a check to the IRS, which in my state, uh, what, what I do is a four quarterly, every year, not just once. Once is hard enough, but four times? Many of you do that also. It's like painful. The IRS does not care whether I give willingly or grudgingly. Not so with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not but love, I gain nothing. The Lord weighs our motivations. And this truth is both really a terror to us and at the same time a great comfort. It forces us to be honest about our motivations, and hopefully to at least ask God to examine them and lead us to the cross and see once again for the millionth time that our identification is in Christ. Secondly, God can do great things with tiny offerings. Think about how many normal, 
humble people without the material means of other people have been set free and liberated to give from their little amount by just knowing this truth. Knowing that the Lord knows their hearts and he can use anything to bring glory to himself. The power, the spiritual power from any such humble gift in love to the Lord just can't be measured. And this should encourage us, all of us. Those of you who give to people who depend on gifts from people to uh, be involved in some ministries, especially missionaries, have you ever noticed in a prayer letter when somebody actually says something like this, Instead of going after the people that they know have a lot of funds, they say, listen, I'm just letting you know what I'm doing. And I would rather take a couple of bucks a month from 200 people than two or three gifts from corporate America president CEOs. You understand the difference? Why? You ever thought about that? Why? Because they know that then their ministry is supported and involved with hundreds of people who are being blessed by God as they see what he's doing through them in some far-off crazy place. Or maybe right across town. Or wherever they're called. There's another example I want to share that's really personal and very special to me. When Marty and I started raising our support to go to Colorado... Yes, we had to live on. We had to. Did you get that? That's called being thankful. We got to live on what people gave us. So we had to raise support, which means that was a new experience. Visiting, 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 asking, asking, and how to do that right or try to. We did that in 1994 and left in 95 to go live five years there and we at the Christian Challenge Camp. And it was off of our support. That's it. The first gift that was given to us was from a little girl in our church, the very first gift, who pulled out a quarter, two dimes, and a nickel, 50 cents. That meant more to us than anything. So much so that I have that change framed in my office if you'd like to go in and see it. And why? Because it's a reminder that God provides exactly what we need. And he uses lots of special people, humble even small children who, out of the greatness and the love of their hearts, just reach in. and You've all seen that. And it's very, very special. Very special. Thirdly, we learn here that at the judgment, who is going to square the accounts? The judge, our Lord, the king. In other words... This widow's works will be revealed, not just Jesus revealing them to his apostles here, to his disciples, but to whom? 
And we will be there amongst this happening. And we will be rejoicing because we know this story. But it's going to be multiplied in geometric proportions. And her soul is going to be revealed at that time in its beauty. She will be among the first, not the last. I believe Jesus taught about that. The first will be last, and the last first. Is it possible for the church to love and give like this widow? Now, if you're thinking, Bobby, is this going to be a message just to us? Are you whipping us into something you're not telling us we don't know about? No. Because there's examples in the New Testament, and then God will work. And you know what this is? 2 Corinthians 8, the first five verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. About the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty, got that? Joy, poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints, the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. We don't have to make a list of who gives what and how much. Because as I'm sure you've noticed, the richest wealth of generosity many times happened from the people who have the least. So all of us, whether you have it or whether you don't, can serve, supply, and relieve, and love, and support in ways that other people can't. Because maybe their stuff is going to other stuff that doesn't make that much difference. Looks good, but maybe not much else. God knows, see, this is, we are his. The church, every church, the people who know him belong to him. He's the head in Christ. And God gives us different. He supplies differently. And he puts it all together somehow to bring glory to himself and teach us how faithful he is as we learn to walk this way. There are many examples in scripture like this one that Paul is talking about. The bottom line is God doesn't want our money. He wants us. Yet we can't give ourselves to him apart from our money. That's also true, the other side of the coin. 
It's true that our money speaks. It tells us where our hearts are. What does our giving say about us? Fall in love with God with all your heart. For wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Those of you who are really sharp and you know this verse, know that that's in the reverse. The reverse works. Wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And praise the Lord that he's doing that in the hearts in this place. And it's evident. And it's encouraging. (sighs) Let it out. Walk with him. Love him. You're loving each other so well. So well. Keep it up. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so encouraged by this passage. We know you know right motives from wrong motives. We know how easily that we're all tempted to want to call attention to ourselves. And we have many examples here in the body that you've put us in of people who know that and who walk humbly before you and serve in so many ways, in so many different ways. And it is for your glory and your honor. And that is so encouraging. It keeps us in check. It encourages us. What's important is you and how you are glorified. How what we do, what we say, what we think, what we have is all so that you may work through us to draw people to yourself to bring honor and glory to testify who you are you are our maker the creator almighty who sent his son to save us to purchase us for yourself to share your richness your glory forever and ever We can't even conceive of this in so many ways, God, and you remind us so much through your word how true this is. Help us to focus on what's important, truly what's important, to trust you for what we don't understand, knowing that nothing has escaped you. Thank you for giving us a reason, a purpose to be here that you have taught us and shared with us in your word. Oh God, you created us for yourself and here we are. You've bought us, purchased us in Christ and we are finding out day to day how much we still fight trying to know you, trying to give ourselves to you, trying to remind ourselves that there is no real inner, genuine, lasting joy apart from knowing you. That nothing can last. You last. You've proved your love to us. And we thank you with gratefulness from the depths of our being. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction?
For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Amen. You're dismissed.